Well, good morning from me. Uh, as Carol introduced us, um, me and Rachel lead this church, and I've got the best job in the world. I have a, a lovely time of it. Uh, you're quite a nice bunch, if I'm honest with you. Most of the time. We are, this morning, continuing our series of talks, making our way bit by bit through the book of the Acts of the Apostles. At least one of our speakers has suggested that a better title for this book could be The Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because although Jesus' people were sent on the mission to tell the world the good news of what Jesus has done for us, really, it's the stuff that God does to make these missions happen that I argue could be the focus of the book. God at work to show the world that he loves them, that he's calling them home, and that he's sending people very much like us to do it. If you are new to us this morning or you're visiting, uh, if you've joined us along the way even, then by the way, you're very, very welcome and it's lovely to have you with us. And also, I really do recommend that you go back and get some of these earlier talks that we've had through the Book of Acts. It's been a really interesting journey, a really exciting and a challenging journey. And some of the podcasts from the previous talks are available on the Kingdom Vineyard website, kingdomvineyard.com. I endorse it to you, especially the early ones. There's some great ones on there. It's a bit of a belter of a story, and all the better because it's non-fiction. Our passage this morning will be Acts chapter 10, from verse 1 to verse 35. So if you have a Bible or a Bible device, uh, why don't you turn there just now? And for your edification and enjoyment, we'll also put these words up on the screen because about a minute ago I gave them to Phil and he's really good. Just tech team, aren't they brilliant? Or one of them today. Whilst you are flicking to the right place, my headline for us this morning from our passage is this. Anyone who fears God and works to please him is acceptable to God. Anyone who fears God and works to please him is acceptable to God. So far in our story through Acts, we've seen amazing moments of God's kindness and power, meeting the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight, a Jewish worshiper from a far off country. We've seen Saul, the super Pharisee, the unlikeliest of converts to Jesus' way, getting taken out mid-mission by a direct intervention of Jesus himself. And Saul became, the mega evangelist apostle, on the side of God's word, on the side of the people of God. Today, our passage brings us to another explosive controversy for the church. The gospel breaks out of the box of the nation formerly known as God's people. Jesus and our salvation came from the Jewish people, but as of this passage this morning, it was no longer only for the Jewish people. Whereas beforehand, to be one of God's chosen people, you had to be born Jewish or convert to Judaism. Now, you just have to come to Jesus and let him change your life. Now, everybody has the ability to meet God. Every people group on earth can approach the one true God and God can come and meet them. No trip to the Jerusalem temple necessary. Anyone. Anyone who fears God and works to please him is acceptable to God. And the way that God reveals this truth to the world is through one man, 
a Roman army centurion, who even though he wasn't born a Jew and hadn't converted to become one, had recognized that this God was real, had begun to pray to him, and lived doing good works to please him. You've had loads of time to find the passage. At this point, I'm going to invite my friend Liesl to come up and read it for us. Thank you, mate. Oh, you've got your own as well. That's brilliant. Do you want to hold the microphone? Okay. Thank you. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the poor, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now, send to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened in something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners up into the, to the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, While Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you're looking for. What's the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day, he rose and went away with them and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, 
You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I ask then, why you sent for me? And Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Thank you, man. Thank you so much. Quite a long passage this morning, but um, not only is it a great story, it kind of makes sense only if we talk about the whole of it all at once. So, um, yeah, I'm excited by it. Hopefully you will be too. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So there's this Roman centurion, Cornelius, who somehow or other has come to hear about the God of the Jewish people, has come to start praying to God, started to live his life doing things that please God, like caring for the poor, and has even started to fear God. I think the fear of God isn't necessarily a popular thing to preach in a society that encourages people to just do whatever they want to do. Isn't God meant to be all nice and loving all the time anyway? And surely he would just smile at me, whatever I do, so long as I feel good about it, right? If we stop and think about that attitude, that approach to God for just a moment, it becomes pretty obvious that it doesn't make sense. If there is a God, if he's not just a nice idea, not just the hollow force of love in the world, but if, if he's real, if he really is the God who's revealed himself to us as humanity through this thing called the Bible, and if God is really someone we can relate to, even have a relationship with, then he's a thinking and a feeling being with opinions on how he wants this creation that he's made to work. If he's designed us, no matter how far we've fallen from that perfect design and I think I've fallen quite a long way. Then he had intentions for us, plans for how he wanted and wants us to behave toward him and toward each other. And if he's good, if he's as blindingly, fiercely good and holy as humanity has experienced him to be, then if he's that one before whom we would find ourselves falling to our knees in shame and full self-recognition of how painfully wretched we've been, actually fear is not a bad response after all, I don't think. 
I'm not talking about manipulation or control, and I'm especially not saying that the church has any license to demand things of people using the fear of the Lord as a stick to beat anyone with. Hear me stay as far away from that as I possibly could. But I think that having a healthy fear of the Lord means you and I recognizing who God is, recognizing our true status in the very bright light of who he is. It includes us submitting to him, deciding to put his way first. And it does include fearing what he could entirely deservedly do to us if we tried to fight him. And for the record, as a completely kind designer, his plans for us are the best for us. It's as simple as that. Yes, he's loving. He is. And he's so forgiving so patient, so kind, but he is also still the pure and blindingly good God who created and can righteously judge everything. And to rebel against him, even to sneak in a sin here or there, and then to try and look him in the face, it's not a good idea. God is love, but God is just in a way that our idea of justice would shrink back from an embarrassment. Lord, let us never take your forgiveness for granted. There's a reason that Proverbs 9 verse 10 tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. I wonder, even before we dive too deeply into our passage this morning, how many of us could do with an increase in the fear of the Lord? alongside our understanding of how loving he is. How would you and I having a healthy fear of the Lord change our attitude to him? How would it change our prioritizing of spending time with him in prayer or with Bible reading? How would a healthy fear of the Lord change the way we use our money, the way that we look at the poorest in the world? So this Cornelius has come to a sincere recognition of who God is and who he is in relation to God. Cornelius, we're told, is a devout man who feared God, who gave generously to those in need, as the NIV translates arms, and who prayed continually to God. We even find him in this passage praying at the ninth hour of the day, which was a traditionally Jewish time to pray. Nice one, Cornelius. And yet, and yet, Cornelius hasn't become Jewish. He'd stayed on the other side of that sharp divide, even if his life looked more holy than many of those of God's people did. So Cornelius gets a visit from an angel. I like that we're told of how terrified Cornelius was. Remember, this guy is the commander of hundreds of Roman soldiers. And Cornelius, seeing this angel, recognizes that this messenger of God is not to be tangled with. And I think that in verses four and five, the message that the angel brings is really comforting and really challenging. The angel tells Cornelius that your prayers and your arms have ascended as a memorial before God. A memorial. So what's that all about? The memorial offering is a reference to one of the priestly sacrifices as given to us in the book of Leviticus, chapter two, verse two. 
The memorial offering is the offering, grain that farmers had brought in from the field to give to God, mixed with some sweet-smelling incense that was burned on the temple altar, making a lovely-smelling smoke that wafted up. And the idea was that this was to bring to God's remembrance the one offering it. Like an incredible barbecue that someone in your street somewhere is having and you just can't tear your nostrils away from it. God wants this to be a two-way relationship. Of course he doesn't need us to light fires for him to be able to remember us. Of course he remembers us. But he wants our side of the relationship to be active too. Sort of a, hey there, me again. I'm still here with you. Do you like my fire? Not a, yeah, yeah, God, I know you're kind of still there, but I'm just doing my thing, yeah. And the angel says that Cornelius's prayers and arms have ascended before God, just like the very pleasing memorial offering. Do you know, our good deeds, our generosity to the poor, as well as our prayers rise up to God like sweet-smelling smoke. Wow. We might have pictured our prayers rising to God, our prayers going into the throne room and him appreciating that, but how often do we picture our giving to the poor as a sweet-smelling offering to God in quite this literal way? And I think that we can infer to our uncomfortable shame that the absence of our offering to the poor, of our generosity to the poor, is also noticed in the throne room of God. He's warned us about it enough times. But Cornelius. Cornelius is doing really well at living a life that pleases God, it seems. And so God has plans for him. And the angel tells him, send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who's called Peter, he's lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. By the seaside, isn't that lovely? Now, in the gospel stories, Jesus tells the disciples, uh, this is uh, Luke 19.30, Jesus tells the disciples, go into the village in front of you, where on entering, you'll find a colt tied, which no one has ever sat, untie it and bring it here. Jesus gave the disciples this instruction face to face. How odd must it have sounded? This word of knowledge brings some scholars to say, oh, Jesus must have known someone in that village. Yeah, he knew about the cult. That was his mate's Ford Fiesta. Yeah, he, he knew it was there. So he just, he just said, go and get Bob's donkey. Nah. Now, I think Jesus had a word of knowledge, a tip-off of the Holy Spirit. And when he asked the disciples to follow his instructions, it turned out to be bang on true. For Cornelius... His vision, this vision of the meeting of the angel, it was still a vision. When it had all finished, when the vision of the angel had gone, I wonder how easy it would have been for Cornelius to just doubt it all. To dismiss the instructions as just my imagination, a bit of a weird daydream. And if we, if you get a specific word that might be from God, but might just be me, how often are we tempted to just dismiss it, to play it safe, to not risk it for that biscuit, to not say anything about it just in case we're wrong and we look an absolute weirdo? 
But on the flip side, when we do, when we step out, when we take a risk in faith and say, guys, I think God's saying this, let's give it a go. Those moments, that's where we get the amazing, wow, it could only have been God stories from. Cornelius takes the risk, sends the servants and the soldier to Joppa to follow the angel's instructions. Scene change. Verse nine, we join Peter on the roof of Simon the Tanner's house in Joppa, who's nipped up for a prayer time before lunch. And it says here that Peter falls into a trance. I can picture him resting still, waiting on God. And what feels almost like a daydream becomes a sort of a prayer conversation with God speaking through pictures. Here, mid-prayer time, Peter is hungry. And although it doesn't say it here, I think it's entirely possible to imagine Peter being thoroughly distracted from his prayers. I love that Peter is a mascot for the humble, bumbling Jesus follower like me. And so I like to picture that he sat there having a prayer time and trying to quieten the gurgles. In the gospel accounts of Peter's life, he's constantly saying the stupid thing, doing what Jim would do if Jim was stood in front of Jesus and decided to say something without thinking what that something should be. Here, he's hungry. Ah, Peter, I can relate. All this time Peter's having this time with God, He's completely unaware of what God's got planned. He has no idea of the seismic shift that God's about to pull, opening up access to God to all of mankind. God is about to take the special status of his chosen people, the Jews, and throw open the doors wide to all people, even the Gentiles, those who had been unclean. This is about to be huge. Cornelius' men, Gentile, Roman soldiers, are on the way to meet Peter. God's arranged all of the chess pieces ready for this huge move, and in order to prepare Peter to go along with this huge shift of gear, he sends Peter a picture that will change Peter's heart and make him ready to receive these Roman soldiers. So, what does the Lord say to Peter to prepare him? How does God communicate this huge change and important mission to poor old bumbling Pete? How can God get through to Peter, who's gone to the roof to pray, but is at least partly thinking about his rumbly-tumbly this whole time? Oi, Peter, look, food. The Lord sends Peter a picture of a giant floating picnic blanket, literally wafting bacon sandwiches up and down in front of his nose with a barbecue king prawn on the side in order to get his attention. I love Peter. Can you imagine? Mm, yes, Lord, more. Thank you, Lord, more. Wait, wait a second, Lord. Some of those animals aren't right, Lord. That's against the food, Lord. That's what the Gentiles eat, Lord. Yeah, that's right, Peter. Very good. Now listen to this. That food's okay now. So Peter speaks up quickly, classic Pete, and says, oh, oh no, I, I know this one. No, God. No, 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 that stuff's not allowed, right? In my imagination of both sides of this conversation, there is a heavenly face palm that shakes the... Well done, Pete. Yeah, yeah, well, well done. Now listen, when God, you know, God, when God is declaring that things are clean, 
even things you'd normally stay clear of, pay attention, Peter, okay? Don't dismiss the unclean things when you see God at work in them, okay? In fairness to Peter, it's no wonder that he was inwardly perplexed, we read in verse 17. This seems to be God changing his mind, which isn't like God, so you want to be sure. And as much as I tease old Pete, it's only because I know that the Lord has had to have so much more patience for me. So for Peter here, working out what the Lord's saying to him, being obedient in this situation meant being attentive to what God was saying then, not relying on an understanding of what God had said previously. I'm not aware of God having changed his mission any time recently, but I know I'm constantly changing in a world that's constantly changing, and so I want to make sure that I am hearing what God is speaking to me now, to make sure that I'm doing what he wants me to today. Friends, how's that going for you? Do you maybe need to spend more time on the roof in your lunch break? Our home group's recent journey into practicing praying for healing and praying for prophetic words through these really good everyday supernatural books. If you haven't read it, go and grab one, even if your home group's not doing it anymore. You hold that, sweetie. Thank you. Our journey through this and all the stuff that we've been doing has come out of spending time with God. The very first chapter of that book that sets up the, the journey we've been on is called The Power is in the Presence. And it makes it really clear that all of this, all of our serving him, being used by him supernaturally and really excitingly, this is meant to be a partnership with God. A partnership built on relationship, on intimacy. If we want to hear him, when he speaks, we need to spend some time waiting in silence to get to know his voice. So as Peter's pondering what this picture and this voice might mean, God's brilliant timing kicks in. And down at the gate arrive three men, one of whom's a Roman soldier, remember, calling out, looking for him. Now, I don't know if Peter could have heard it. It's not unreasonable to think that he may well have done. And the conversation that happens downstairs, Peter gets a nudge from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit says, along the lines of, hey, Peter, I'm in this. Go on. Just like Cornelius, Peter could doubt that it's God, could close himself off to this nudge. No, I'm just imagining it, and that guy's a soldier, no chance. But he says yes to God. He follows where he sees God leading. Friends, the most amazing growth I've ever seen in people who follow Jesus comes when they say a brave, uninformed yes to God. And he takes that. He works wonders through them and then grows them phenomenally. And the most heart-sinking stagnation that I have seen in Christians has been when they have seemed to stop looking for those yes moments with God, stopped taking steps of faith, and stayed in a comfort zone that stops them growing, that prevents God from doing fun stuff in their life. 
If that stabbed, as I said it, if there was a nudge within you, if it's time this morning to break off that crust that's formed and ask God to give you a heart that's attentive to him again, then when people come forward for prayer in just a few minutes, come with them. You don't need to tell anyone what it's about, but come and do some business with God this morning. Peter, good lad, takes the risk, owns up to being the one thereafter, and finds out, instead of being arrested, a Roman centurion with a good reputation amongst God's people had had a chat with an angel, and Peter's name had come up. Game on, says Peter. And after the men stay the night with Simon the Tanner, otherwise known as Simon the B&B owner, they all head off to Caesarea to go and see Cornelius. So Peter and this group, they spend the day and a bit journey walking to meet Cornelius. They turn up and it turns out in this time Cornelius has been busy. He thinks he's throwing a party. Guys, guys, an angel told me that God sees me. He told me to go fetch a man. God's going to do something. Come over to my place and bring a casserole or something. So Cornelius has gathered this huge group, greets Peter at the front door and begins by worshipping him. Peter's response, he's quick to correct. Nah, mate, no, 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 I'm, I'm just like you. I'm, I'm just a man like you. Which is a funny choice of words given what God's about to do. As Peter is shown through into the main gathering, he opens by immediately calling out something that would have been obvious to any people there who knew about the Jewish people. He says, you know, it's against my people's laws for me to be here. But God has shown me that I shouldn't call anyone unclean, or maybe we could read unworthy. Instead, instead of fearing that unclean things will contaminate God's people, therefore making them unable to spend time in the presence of God, God has revealed that his presence in his people is stronger, will have a purifying effect on the things and the people that it comes into contact with. Other people groups aren't out of bounds for God's people anymore because God himself is sending us, filled with him, as carriers of his presence to go and get them and bring them into God's loving presence. This is a fantastic change of the game. This is the new relationship with God going, as Jesus said it would in Acts 1 verse 8, to Jerusalem or Judea and Samaria, to the ends of the earth. This is a huge gear shift in the gospel juggernaut's journey. And it suddenly means that anyone is fair game. This Jesus story and the relationship with the Father and the filling with God's presence through his Holy Spirit that come with it, this is now available for anyone without exception. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As Peter says this in verse 28, as he declares it, it also means that Peter's worked out this picture that God's given him. This is the interpretation of the forbidden floating meat sheet. When did Peter work it out, I wonder? Did it click straight away back in Joppa as the soldier messenger was telling him about Cornelius and the angel? Did Peter mull it over with his mates on the long road there? Did God slowly replay this to Peter over and over as he was stood looking at the group of Gentiles at Simon's house? I don't know. 
Either way, Peter has got God's message and he's on board. So Cornelius tells the story of the angel's visit and his message and basically says to Peter, God sent you, so tell us what God's given you. And in our passage, there isn't a specific message from God to Peter that God asked him to deliver to Cornelius and co. But Peter's still under orders generally to be my witness, as Jesus commanded him. And so, Peter's response to Cornelius is him having put together that command to share the news about Jesus with God's specific words to him that what God has made clean, don't you call unworthy. So, verse 34, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Got time for a short Greek geekery. If you'll indulge me a moment, God shows no partiality. This word, partiality, in the original language that the the story of Acts was written in, is worth mentioning because prosopolemptes, the word, thank you, there was was applause there, I'll take it. Uh, Prosopolemptes, which is the word that we've translated here, partiality, it's a mash together of two words in the Greek that means surface or face value and judger, or literally, grasper. So in other words, Peter's saying, truly, I understand that God isn't judging by what's on the surface, or that God isn't grasping at labels. God is not looking at the label, the people group, the identity. These are not blocks to coming to God. No people group on this planet, none that have ever been, and none that ever will be, carry a label that means that God is not interested in them. This is huge, and it was a huge shift of gear. The people like us, God's interested in them. The people not like us, God's interested in them. The people we couldn't possibly imagine coming to God, He's interested in them. From the poorest addict to the sleaziest politician, from the angriest atheist to the most devout worshiper of a different faith. People of any race, any gender, any sexuality, any ideology are people that Jesus wants to meet. But what if they don't dress like us? I see socks but no sandals. What if they don't look like us? What if they don't think like us? What if they're a Brexit slash Remain voter, delete as appropriate? (laughs) God wants them. In every nation, in every peoples, in every culture, it doesn't matter what what they look like. God can get them, so go get them. Anybody. Anybody who recognizes who God is, who fears him in the way I talked about earlier, and whose life and actions begin to match up to that, can come to him, can come back to their creator and restorer and know the life that God offers us. 
I don't want to steal too much from Jeremy's talk next week, but I, I love what comes next. Peter preaches to these brand newly accepted Christians, tells them the full story about Jesus, and as if Peter had any lingering doubts that God might not approve of these people coming to God, God interrupts Peter's sermon by pouring out his Holy Spirit on them. God, right? He's hilarious. God confirms, now these guys are mine. God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I love the encouragement of this, that God can and does reach every tribe, every tongue, every group with his love. And I'm challenged by this. How often have I let someone or have, have I let how someone comes across to me be a reason not to give them a chance to meet the God who loves them? Anyone, anyone who understands who God is, who holds a right respect for him, the right fear of God, and who does the things of a person living in submission to God, anyone who will come to God on God's loving and just terms is acceptable to God. I think this is no less groundbreaking for us today as it was then. But he is good. He's so much better than we give him credit for. So much kinder, so much holier. Anyone can come to him. Balancing a love from him with an awe and a love back to him. In a moment, I'm going to ask if anyone would like to come forward to receive some prayer. And I do want to invite you, alongside all of the many good reasons why you might come forward to receive some prayer this morning and have someone invite God's presence to come and minister to you, I want to invite you specifically to come and receive prayer if you need that reminder that God can meet anyone and perhaps you need to realign your expectations with that. Whether that's because you need to know that that includes you or because you need to know that that includes some of those other people you've been ignoring. And if there's anyone here who has a friend or a family member that you'd particularly love to see come to faith, come to know Jesus for themselves, but it just seems so unlikely, we'd love to pray for you this morning. And if there's anyone who's wondering if God might be calling you to serve him in mission of some sort, come forward in just a moment. We'd love to pray for you too. And finally, if you have a relationship with God, but you maybe need to recapture some of that healthy fear of God, we'd love to pray for you. So, why don't you stand? And I'll pray for us as we shift into our prayer ministry time. As we do some prayer ministry, um, we're gonna carry on worshiping, so if you're not receiving, can I invite you to stay standing if you're able and worship? Um, this, isn't a, this isn't necessarily a spectator sport. It's something that we want to spend time in either praying with each other and for each other or in worship. Also, if you're staying stood on your feet, you might just allow the person next to you to have the confidence and the courage to come forward and get some prayer. Why don't I pray? Father, thank you for the challenge 
that in terms of reaching people with your love and with your goodness, you are so much more up for it than we are. I thank you for the encouragement of that. But Lord, would you challenge us? Would you come, Holy Spirit, even now? Fill us afresh. Say what you want to say to us, Lord. Train us to be attentive listeners.